Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Mind, hosted by serial entrepreneur and author Mark Kramer. Tune into The Best Business Minds to listen to thought-provoking interviews with best-selling business book authors who are today's leading innovators, entrepreneurs, and industry experts from around the globe. Welcome to another edition of The Best Business Minds, where we interview business leaders and academics that write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. Today, our guest is Jan Cavell, author of Scale for Success. Jan, welcome. And Jan is in England. Uh, so we're thrilled to have someone across the pond that we'll be uh, speaking with today. Uh, Jan, give us about your professional background. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for inviting me on the show, firstly. Uh, I am an entrepreneur from England, as you rightly say. And I've had businesses, small businesses, uh, all my life. Uh, till till in recent years, and I'm now in the very lucky position of following a childhood dream of being an author, but putting that together with my other passion, which is entrepreneurship, which I've got involved in ways, both with my own businesses and also in campaigns to encourage others over years. So I'm loving it. What are you doing now? I, I love I love the writing. I love talking to people about entrepreneurship. I love, uh, I obviously hate COVID the same as everybody else, but I, I, it's, I find it fascinating how business is evolving. And just, uh, I love talking about entrepreneurship. I love hearing from other entrepreneurs and helping people to come a little bit away along the ladder. So most of what you're doing now is consulting work? And, and an awful lot of writing, um, you know. So, uh, as I say, it was my intention to retire altogether. So this, is a, this has been a whole new thing. Oh, well, that would been a waste of all that experience. You can't retire. <laughs> I know guys in their eight, late 80s and 90s are still going at it. And they're, they're wondering, what, what would they do with themselves if they didn't do that? There's only so much golf and travel you can do. Well, why did you write this book? And, and I thought it was great, all the all the uh, CEOs, because I like that type of thing myself. So why, why did you write this book? I wrote it for two reasons. I, firstly, from my own personal experience, I'd find that leap that we talk about in, in the book from approximately one to 10 million, depending on sector and pounds and dollars, but, you know, give or take, is incredibly hard. And very few people talk we know that startups are hard and, you know, corporations seem so far off in the distance for most of us when we start that, you know, it's just never going to come into our orbit. But that from your tiny business into something that's going to grow is, is a real chasm that people have to cross. And I didn't realise it was going to be so hard. I didn't realize once I'd established that I found it jolly hard. I didn't realize that lots and lots of people find it hard. But, it, you know, this is a common challenge with other entrepreneurs. So I thought, well, why not try and address that problem as it's something that's about startups? And in the way of addressing it, I, I think peer to peer learning is great for entrepreneurs. And I wondered if I could bring a sort of element of that to the book, which is what I. Oh, you did a great job with it. What's your definition of scaling? And did that match how other entrepreneurs define scaling as you were interviewing them? Excuse me. I think scaling um, has become a bit time-influenced because, of course, scaling used to be... <coughs> Sorry, I swallowed my water down entirely the wrong way. Um, scaling was very much influenced in... But when you got investment, that was and and started to grow very fast. That was scaling. Now you can still scale without the investment if, if you choose to go that route, and you you can depending on your everything else. It's more about sustainable growth, I think now, uh, which may or may not have investment attached. 
and investments become much more attainable to startups, which of course it never was, and you know, or businesses further down the line. So some of the folks who are watching this do run non-for-profits as well. Is there a difference between scaling a non-profit and a for-profit business? Well, I've never run a non think from talking to other entrepreneurs, I think the, the, the difference probably most of all is in financing and in getting investment. And there's some entrepreneurs who I know of that have swapped their non to a profit-making um, entity to get the investment. Now, whether that's a clash of moral values that, you know, they investors need companies to be more focused on profit what I'm not quite sure but I think it's mostly investment driven <coughs> I hope you're feeling okay do you need to take a second I'm fine sorry about that <laughs> no worries no worries uh you write about vision statements how do you make sure they are substantive and are brought uh, bought into by the employees and clients because a lot of them are bullshit and 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 nobody <laughs> buys and nobody really believes them you're absolutely right I mean, particularly if they used to be always something you sort of drummed up with, that somebody could write some good copy and, you know, you all sat around going, we want to be the best at what we do, um, as you rightly say. And I think, you know, I think Gen Z particularly is having a big influence on that because I think companies are moving, well, not just Gen Z, but uh, some, some of the layers above them. But I think companies are genuinely driven about by the need or the desire to have impact on the world and looking at profit as something they need to generate to increase that impact which is a very different way from the old way of thinking we're out to make a profit and we need to produce a nice little copy that makes us look good uh, what was the atlin denim company's mission and and didn't the employees pay a role in their development? So you might tell the audience um, who hasn't yet read the book what the Atlin uh, Denim Company is. The Atlin Denim Company is, is a company that I believe is, if you're into your fashion, very successful in the States, but it's actually Australian-based. And it's a, it's a great story. The man who started it is a man called James Bartle. And he literally, by chance, watched the film and was so appalled by the human trafficking stories in there, but he set out to find more about it and what he could do about it. And he spent 10 years researching it before actually launching denim, which, which does sell denim clothing, mainly jeans, obviously. But it's about the effects they have as a company. And he chose something produce that would have the effects he wanted so so the choice of what they did was was entirely orientated by what he wanted to do which was have impact on freeing up people uh, from from imprisonment uh, empowering people and improving the environment at the same time because he found that if it's bad environments enforce poverty which gave away human control so he works with predominantly Cambodia people. He has factories over there, but unlike a lot of the conditions there, he educates everybody who works for They can go on and look after their families properly and have houses and things they'd never dreamt of having. So he makes a real change. Did the employees have a role in the development of the mission and vision statements? did originally because I mean he did as I say he didn't launch for 10 years and um, and they don't as such have a vision and mission vision and mission um you know he, they have a manifest basically set out but James I talked to him about this because you don't get much more purpose-led than that and yet he said you know it's really too big a concept to to put in a little sort of advertising so they have their manifesto, they state that the, the whole purpose is about human empowerment and sustainability, um, it, you know, environmental sustainability. But, but you know, 
all about. Everything is to do with that. So the people who've joined him uh, already believe in this mission and vision. They do, absolutely. And he was saying to me during COVID that, you know, their first reaction was, you know, what can we do as long as the you're on impacted what can we do we'll take pay cuts whatever is necessary let's keep them safe and that was from his team in australia one, one of the questions i get asked a lot by uh new entrepreneurs is how quickly did to profitability i mean because it used to be when i was younger and i'm 60 now that you had five years to get to profitability and now a lot of venture people want you to break even within a year or two years and than two to three years. So from your research, how long did it typically take these great businesses to get profitable? It's interesting, isn't it? Because I was racking my brains as being of similar age to you as, as to how long it was when I started remembering that it was usually three, a three-year expectation, but not, not that dissimilar from you. And, and yes, absolutely, as Adam has just said, you know, we've now got a situation where one or two of the real big tech companies like still not profitable you know which is is for for people who go back as far as we do almost difficult to understand why would you set up a business that was not going to be profitable after all that time uh yeah so so you've got very different expectations in different sectors i think the unicorns are allowed to postpone some of them run on cash flow expectations as opposed to profitability because uber is enormous there is a way for them to get profitable, but they keep making these additional investments. And so I think it's not either you're growing fast and and you're showing that at some point you'll be profitable. I mean, it was like 20 years until profitable, true, but they were true. pushing done huge, all right now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 They could buy their own country and rename it. Uh, do you see a difference between men and women entrepreneurs? And if so, what is your research i think you know the figures still show that both minority well minorities of any sort including women get less funding you know it's improving but it's got a long way to go we don't have as many women on a board level and everything else do you, do you see a um, you difference know. in how they operate like it do you uh, is there a difference do they operate the same way is women have a different style of doing things you notice any differences when you were interviewing folks? I I think the women, they're not going to love me for this, but I think quite a lot of women are less secure than the men because they're, you know, slightly outside their comfort zone. They're slightly more defensive, not unconsciously, I think. But, but yeah, there's a certain element of that with some of them. Do you think um, with all of them. men are more risk-taking than conservative? I don't know. It's difficult. I mean, I have to say that I remember being interviewed myself for a group of um, that were prom- promoting enterprise again, like I was saying to you, I did regularly. And they went after all the interviews and they said, you know, we'll tell you why you were chosen. And I happened to be at the end and it got to me and they were all, you know, going to all the others, you know, because you did very, very well at this, because you did very well at that, to all the men. And they got to me and they said, because you were busy. So I don't think it always follows. (laughs) So essentially, from your own research, you didn't see anything uh, different? Just just for lack of being able to get finance. I think it's it's real, real. Why do you think that is? I think we're still new to the table, relatively speaking. I mean, I know that people would shake their heads and say that's outrageous and one thing and another. But, you know... Speaking over years, we are still newish to the table, and and people change their minds and their opinions and what they used to slowly. You know, there's still still a lot of prejudices. I met prejudices as a woman, woman entrepreneur. Sadly, Ah, hard to believe in 2021 that would be the case. One of your entrepreneurs, Bev, who had many businesses, pointed out the need to understand four essential components. What are they and, and why is it important? That was my friend Bev, unless I'm very much mistaken. Yes, um, the four segments of marketing. I mean, she was spelling my as uh, 
my mind's going to go a complete blank here, um, your value proposition, what you're actually offering the client. And uh, on top of that, the, your differential, why you're going to offer it either different or offer it in a different way. Um, knowing your market, knowing your research, and of course your cost of acquisition, because unless you've got a reasonable cost of acquisition of a client, business on a financial front. So it comes down to sort of viability of a business and also um, on top of that, actually really knowing your stuff and having got a great market offering, which is it's specific. But when do you plan for scaling? Because you mentioned pre-planning for it. And it sounds like you should assume your product or service will take off. So, which is great. You have great confidence that that's going to be. When should you start really thinking about scaling your business or should that be built in from the very beginning? I think it should be built in from the very early stages. And yes, I do think you need to have confidence confidence once you've done your research that there is space in the market and the market does want your product but once you've established that then I think you should be should have confidence but I also think that the good entrepreneurs are unable to change their offering and you know we've never, again we've seen so much of that in COVID goodness knows people great entrepreneurs have been pivoting left right and centre to survive in difficult sectors you know so so don't think it's set in stone what you're doing. You, you're, it's building a good company that can deliver great things. Uh, what kinds of skills, experience, and gender diversity uh, do you look for in a business? Do you think businesses that want to scale should be looking for? I, I think people, you know, it's got so much more open about hiring now. I mean, I'm not personally a fan of enforced. But, you know, the fact that we are open to hiring everybody and anybody is, is just fantastic. And, of course, we've also got, with COVID, we've got more open to global talent um, because uh, people are working remotely. You know, so we've got this huge, ta- incredible global workforce to pull on, um, either on a temporary basis or, or project work, which is what I tend to use now actually for an employee it's uh, it's quite normal to have your business in London and be hiring somebody from Australia or wherever in a small town to do X, Y and Z because they've got right skill set. It's, it's fantastic and it doesn't make one hoot's bit of difference anymore who they are, what they believe in, where they come from, which, which is great and it's just how it should be. I mean, every study you see from Harvard uh, some of the other major schools all show that diversity not just gets you a little bit of a good shot in, in terms of sales and creativity and so forth, but like huge, like percent to as I've seen as high as 36% improvement in a company by yeah. having that diverse workforce. Um, who should review the resumes and ask the question? Should it be someone internal or hire someone external? a variety of skills needed to execute on putting a team together to scale. So what's your, what did you learn and what's your advice there? I think putting a team together is probably the hardest, hardest challenge of scaling, actually. Uh, and I think it depends on the amount of people you're hiring and the size you are and everything else. It, I mean, it can clearly become impractical for the CEO to look at every resume. So, you know, you may be sorting out higher lower down or to at least profile and send out the resumes but for hiring your top team you know it is and people senior it's it's got to be i think the person at the top who chooses them it's it's just too important you're looking for amazing people who who can do as well if not better than you you know and and also have the right mindset the right attitude uh, and I think it's really important that that you know that gives and I also think uh, a lot increasing numbers of, of people are allowing their own teams to have a say in who I think that's great as well uh, some of the most successful entrepreneurs they've worked with 
the only people they would hire, at least in the beginning, were other people with uh, who were recommended by the organization. So it, you didn't get in unless somebody on the existing company knew you vouched for you yeah. and brought you in. And I've heard so, of that one. <laughs> yeah. Do you think as the company starts growing, do you think you should side recruiter or have somebody inside who really is involved with the culture day to day? Yeah, you're going to get the shot again. I think I just, in my early days, I worked in recruitment, so I've probably got a bit of a jaundice. You know, I don't think they're ever going to have your interests quite as much in, at heart as, as, as somebody who is part of your company. Um, What kind of experience does the person evaluating future staff and needs should they have? What's the background they should have? I think, I mean, I think their background needs to be focused on, I think they need to be high up because, you know, you don't want somebody who's just started and done a bit of HR before, you know, you're talking about one of the most important functions in the business, in your team, you know. So they should have so line key. experience? You feel they should have line and operating experience? I think it, it, it helps if they've, if they've had line and operating experience and really understand actually how the business works. You know, HR people who really have no actual operational understanding and and that's a, a distinct drawback i think um you know i don't i don't see how they can do their job there's a question from the audience does a longer term business plan for scaling typically include swapping out leadership on the notion that the startup skill set and business acumen is significantly different than the 10 to 20 million so what do you think about that and what you learn I think that's a really interesting question. I think, you know, we're almost also talking about a swap from being the sort of startup lead, whatever title, fund, um, to, to being a, a proper grown-up CEO. And I think what I'm seeing a lot of at the moment is founders who automatically become CEOs. And particularly for first-time founders, actually have the skill set. Some of them can develop it. And some of them can't. And of course, that's why a lot of VCs, you know, it's traditional that a lot of VCs kick founders out, you know. Um, and we've had lots of often unpleasant. But the fact remains is it is a different skill set. And you either need training or practice or time to develop, or and, and you know, you may or may not be able to develop and it may or may not suit you. Not you enjoy it either, actually. Yeah. Or you may not not be interested, right? You may not be interested in it. Yeah. You love the creativity in the beginning, Absolutely. the excitement. But once it, you have a big organization, all you're expected to do is think about strategy and oh. meet major clients. It might be a lot less interesting to you, especially if you're the type of likes to be very hands-on. You're so right, Mark. I've seen this a lot with, you know, small, small businesses that have got to a certain, you know, that stage and they're suddenly terribly bored with you know same old same old every day yeah yeah and they or they feel like they just can't make a what's the contribution they're making they feel like they're not even earning their paycheck anymore where they yeah felt like when they 15 hours a day seven days a week now they can see it one of the entrepreneurs you interviewed worked in the early stages of oracle entering europe what did he learn about their preparation for growth when it came time to hiring people and it that way that was a, uh, I think that was a, a man called Stephen Kelly um, who who worked for Oracle and he also was um, CEO of Sage and he's now head of technology and he, he had a, a fantastic chance I think because he worked with so many amazing people at Oracle from Mark Benioff onwards so and uh, you know people who went on with Salesforce etc all about people development. Larry Ellison, um, you know, was about developing people to be as good as they could be, if not better than they ever could be. And I think that's the approach that does with his team. Uh, to this day, I think he puts the team development absolutely at the front of everything he does. Um, you wrote 
Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, and, and you know, keeps them very motivated by their own development, very excited about developing. You know, I think you must have, have, have a skill set of finding, well, A, of being a great leader is fantastic, but also having, choosing quite secure people to work for him because there's this um, confident, positive feedback, but people don't take it as criticism, I don't think. They oh worry we can do better next week you know which is is the ideal i i've seen i uh work with a company where the two partners were together for 13 years and one day one of the partners said to the one who wore i think we should bring someone in to help us get us to the next level the next day when he came back the guy changed all the locks and um felt he was trying to get rid of him he goes i'm not trying to get rid of you i'm just saying we're not making enough money as much as we could be making at this juncture. And maybe we need to interview somebody else because he was the technical guy, the CEO. And they ended up in lawsuits that lasted for a couple of years. And the te CEO technical guy ended up buying him out, but he really devastated his own business. Um, you, you read that one of your CEOs said experiencing failure is a good thing. Why is that? I've heard other people too. Um, Russell Dalgleish, who's um, actually an investor in VC now, said he's done lots of um, things horribly wrong and things horribly right. And he doesn't care. It teaches, um, what did he say, emotional resilience and um, emotional intelligence and resilience. Uh, Stephen Kelly actually was was hard. I can't remember it for Chordy and um, and hard because he hadn't had a failure, you know, and that's much more recognized, I think, by a, a lot of great American companies as part of developing, you know, I'm always reminded of the Kipling quote, if you can meet triumph and disaster and treat those imposters just the same. And I think there's a lot in that still, and it can be applied to business failure and success. Those of us who've been serial entrepreneurs always talk more we're telling stories about our failures than our successes, right? Because we don't even know why we succeeded in most cases, but we <laughs> certainly know why we failed. Like, you know, we've made mistakes after we've looked at them. We said, how did I, what was I thinking? Very true. But I, yeah, I think you're right. I think, uh, think that's good. They're not, we're not as secure as, as people imagine we are, I don't think. And therefore success isn't necessarily that comfortable for us you create a meritocracy because many high growth organizations become bureaucracies. So what does the leader do to attract and retain star players and avoid retaining mediocrity? Because I mean, we've seen lots of great companies, you know, Wang Laboratories, you know, things that you and I have seen in, during our professional careers where they were once powerhouses and cease to exist today. I think it's very difficult. Um, I think easy actually for even just one bad member of staff to destroy an entire culture but I also think it comes back to a little bit of what I was saying is is people you know would like to be secure and to want to do better and accept that they are on a learning mission and that means that you know they need to have tremendous trust in the leadership uh, and I also think in you know, sales i think people like competition you know i i, I still think i know sales has evolved a lot um, but but i do think sales people are competitive uh, and they need to, to to compete against each other to do better to get higher figures i never worry about mediocrity with sales because they're very, you know either you're really pushing it and you want to go yeah. past your quota because you're insatiable your bonuses are set in a way that should make you insatiable. Mm. I kind of worry about all the other folks uh, behind the lines that are there every day and, and the creative types being pushed out the door um, because there's so many rules. In yeah, I mean, it's that terribly difficult balance. And I think that's one of the killers when you, you make this sort of leap from startup to a bigger company is that, of course, there's loads of people on hand to say, oh, well, you know, you must structure it. 
you know, X number of manuals and job descriptions and everything. And it is a terrible killer of creativity, that. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden, what was fun becomes onerous. Uh, and, you know, it's a wise and experienced person who recognises that and still generates for fun. You know, yes, they've got job descriptions, if need be, they've got manuals, you know, and so on. But they keep the fun right up there because people need to love being at work. When are entrepreneurs, when are entrepreneurs looking for investors, what type of angels and VCs, because you talk about this in the book, helpful in helping a company scale? I think it's one of the wonderful things that have really happened more since my day. It's, it's angels. <laughs> and, you know, um, because I, the old-fashioned VCs who <clears throat> made money available to fast-growing companies at almost any price and on entirely their terms, it became such an overcrowded market that, you know, businesses opened up for angels, plus we had tech companies um, where which needed funding from startup and all sorts of reasons. Uh, <coughs> and I think angels do because I think they get more involved on a personal level. I think they're more often more supportive and, you know, it's, it's lonely actually till, you know, you've you, a company of size and you've got a big team who you know at the top there it's incredibly lonely and i think an angel is more likely to buy a long talk to be yours and the company's friend and support they say is to be honest unless you're very lucky yeah 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 for sure and i think a lot of vcs come from the banking world and not from the entrepreneurial world where the vast uh, majority of the angels are people who've run before yeah. and so they can add not just the the cash value but also their experience in doing things and like you said it's very lonely at the top and sometimes you don't even want to share uh your concerns leadership you really need to talk to somebody else because you don't want to panic everybody because <laughs> you're internally yeah. panicked about whatever's going on one of your interviewees talks about the fallacies of vcs could you uh please <laughs> Yeah, I, David Siegel, he's a, he's a very interesting guy. I don't know if you ever come across him. He tends to be very controversial in his, in his ideas, uh, of which they include that he's now a lot less than, I think, you know, basically in his opinion. And he argues that the fallacies are, are based on lots of things, but they think they know more than and that it's their own brilliance and expertise that um, cause them to be successful with investment when when they are successful with investments, rather than you know, the degree of luck and world influences and everything else that goes into it. And he thinks that there are various other fallacies that people tend to invest when things are going up. Um, for example, um, and he argues that all investments over the years, if you started from go up and down, so if you only invest in things when they're up, you're going to come crashing down more likely, whereas, you know, vice versa. Um, he's very interesting arguments, um, you know, uh, as, to, as to why. And, and most of all, he's, he believes that you should diversify massively, and that way you get much, much better returns. And the people think they're going to make a huge killing with one investment or very going to come across a sooner or later if you like well they never know what that one investment if that's going to be the right one or not because even the entrepreneurs don't know i made on facebook and mark zuckerberg had four ventures going and he thought the one that had the least amount of promise was facebook and <laughs> because he never envisioned facebook to be what it is today no that i knew but i didn't know you had three others more successful. Yeah, yeah when, he was, when he was at Harvard. You write yeah. about the North Star approach. What is that? The North Star approach is, uh, yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's propounded by other people, but in the book I write about it um, with reference to somebody who teaches at, at um, 
it's not Harvard, it's um, Stanford, um, called Darl Coleman, um, who's also an entrepreneur in his own right. And um, I remember him telling me that he, he first came across it when he was taught it, and when he was studying himself at Stanford. And they said to him, you know, what, what makes you really cross? On a, you know, he said, I was a student, you know, and I held forth. I've talked about how fed up I was of going to the laundrette and how my skateboard got stuck in the potholes. And, you know, it took him till, because they, they told him to list 100. And it took him till about 67 when he suddenly said, and I hate poverty. Mm -hmm. um, you know, and if you go on long enough, you get to the things that really, you know, matter rather than the fact that you didn't like your lunch or whatever. And it, it comes down to that. It's, it's a mixture between the things that give you joy and the things that really distress you uh, as motivating factors, rather than pulled often by education, as so many kids are, you know, or, or, or by peer pressure, you know, we're told <clears throat> when we're growing up, I mean, all my peer, peers, girls wanted to go into publishing or wanted to be models. So, um, you know, that, that's what everybody did, but, but only because everybody else said so, rather than actually it, it, it didn't drive anybody. Uh, and that's what North Star Approach is all, all about. It's being uh, genuinely what gets us going, be it happy or angry. When developing and testing business ideas, you write about the design thinking process. Uh, explain that and who has done it well. I mean, the design thinking process is, is still asking why you do something, but in a more business way. And it's almost a bit of a different way of looking at things to Bev's for at the moment, because it's looking at what you're thinking of doing. Um, say you're thinking of building a, a big red tractor and um, thinking, is there a market for my big red tractor? Really want to build this thing and that's what I want to sell and um, you know is, is there a crying need for my big red tractor uh, and you know but way before you actually you know sort of get, get to make um, and only when you start getting a prototype do you you know do you, do you actually go back to um, you know so you don't spend the money immediately but when you've got a prototype you can go back to find out whether that big red tractor is, is what people want or whether they actually wanted a blue truck, um, you know. But, but Darl also says, describes it as finding the idea that is, it solves a hair on fire problem rather than, you know, if you've got two problems, your legs itching and your hair's on fire, you know, which is, which is the one that's going to be the right one to go for is important and does that really factor into success because many of the star companies consumers other businesses employees question their values and yet they're super profitable anyway <laughs> they do and i think for that i think it's because we're seeing you know this change brought about by tech con connectivity and people know now you know you can't get away with greenwashing anymore so if you have a statements that say we're great or of course we care about the environment when you know actually you're polluting 10 rivers you know you're going to get found out you can't do it anymore so i think particularly established com companies because if if you do get exposed on social media or whatever for having fake values you know you're going to lose your audience like overnight but on the plus side it's, again, it's values that get you and your team out of bed um, and bond you together. And also, you know, when they're genuine, they're what builds a, a brand and builds a following, builds fans and um, brand ambassadors because it's, it's values when it comes down to it that people identify with now. Um, many entrepreneurs prefer not to use their own money and start and grow their business. That was always a preference of mine when I was starting my different ventures, but now I've got money into my own venture. Um, why do you advocate self-funding? 
I, I don't totally advocate. I think it's got definite pluses. And, and it was something I noticed when I was writing in the book, uh, that there was a big age differential that uh, older entrepreneurs tended to be more pro than um, younger ones who were more pro going the various funding routes and getting early funding. But I do think if if you're in a sector that could possibly go the bootstrapped off to learn from it in the early process, I think it teaches you to understand value and your revenues and your markets in a far more harsh way which will stand you in good stead for later on even if you get that investment later on you know and then there's all the genuine financial benefits uh you know you're not paying out for you don't need to you're um you know owning your slice of the whole pie um much longer maybe forever you know which could be a very good thing in the long run yeah i i sort of them keeping having more of the pie to keep for yourself, but being smart about it for sure. Yeah. Um, what's what's the value of getting involved with an accelerator and how are they different from business incubators? You remember those business incubators? Yeah, I mean, all these things are sort of relatively new, although certainly are in the UK. But I mean, an incubator is very much aimed at a startup idea, you know, and developing startup ideas run by a group of angels or VC investors or done in conjunction with universities. They tend to provide a co-working space. They will be probably open-ended in duration. Um, and, and they're about teaching and developing that idea and to, to push you off into running a successful company. Whereas your accelerator is a sector attendance that you sign up for and pay for and during that duration yes you will get some teaching but you will also be very much focused on developing your idea to scale it and also to pitch it at the end in the hope of getting investment yeah i i I think that's uh i saw them as slight differentiators between incubators and accelerators you have crowdfunding and do you recommend it? And what are the keys to building a successful crowdfunding campaign? Because you talk about that in the book. Yeah, I do. I mean, crowdfunding, of course, used to be mainly for charities and, and it's, it's become a, a mainstream supply of investment for businesses, which is great. I think there's a lot going for it. I think it spreads, obviously, the risk. Um, it is still governed by financial institutions and laws so you know there's no carelessness with money it's still competitive because you can't just get on a platform with a completely rubbish idea you know the platforms got to protect themselves and so so there's a lot of it's it's still a genuinely competitive hard-working proper sound thing to do if you like and i think the advantages of doing it spreads risk, but I think also the investors tend to be people who are really passionately interested in your sector. You know, you wouldn't tend to um, um, you know, um, people who are passionate about food investing in a coal mine, you know. Um, you know, you'd get people who are passionate about food. So, uh, you know, I think value in themselves they bring information they bring intelligence and you know so you've got all sorts of extra assets come with the money i think people don't realize it but in crowdfunding you got to create your own crowd people on there and strangers just start investing but nobody (laughs) knows your page exists until you've um generated a lot of money and then you start moving up in the rankings on those crowdfunding platforms so they're making Make money no matter what, but sure. uh, you're only going to make money as if you can get your own friends, family, and they can get people to come on and actually uh, invest with you. Uh, a question from the audience is: Hello, 
entrepreneur and manufacturing have learned controlling the process and having several suppliers minimize potential problems. What are your thoughts on having a soft launch to allow you to scale uh, slower and steadily and more aggressive marketing and seeking funding to rapid growth, providing the products proved successful in the initial sales? I think, I mean, I love that sort of approach because it is, it's, it's more test it, you know, test it, sell it, prove it, um, develop it, you know, without going crazy on something not proven, you know, so it's right up my street, but if you want to start so but yeah, so, so if that's what you're doing, well done you and good and lots and lots of luck with it. Yeah. Uh- Besides that, anymore, there's so many options for investors that until you kind of prove it out anyway and show that people are willing to, you're not going to raise money. It always reminds me of Shark Tank, and I guess you guys watch that in England as well, Uh, Shark Tank or have your own version of it. Uh, You're not going to raise money today without being able to show somebody outside of medical device technology, uh, the healthcare space. You're not going to be able to raise it because somebody else has already shown that there's works is able to go and raise that money. Um, what is pre, uh, pre? I guess it's pre-prototology. What is that? Um, yeah, pre, it's pre-typing, I think. But, yeah. um, but you may be saying it much better than me. But um, pre-typing as opposed to prototyping, um, I'm not going to the same sentence again, Yeah, is testing out ideas before you've made the prototype, basically. It's it's getting all the testing of the market done and the ideation with too much money and, and getting as far as the prototype stage. And first, I'm not going to remember, the, it's, it's entirely in the name of the gentleman who wrote the book on it and he laid out various sort of methods of specific ways of doing it. For me, his name. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't... Yeah, I'm sorry. It was, it, it was in your book, but I thought that was interesting. And I think a lot of times we save ourselves a lot of headache. Oh, well if, done. Somebody said, somebody said, uh, Alberto. What did you learn uh, is the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make when pitching to investors? I think it's, it, for me, it's, it, as the, as the biggest mistake entrepreneurs make altogether is they obsess about their own idea being so brilliant. You know, I always remember when I was teaching sales one day years ago to um, startups and young companies, and this lady came along to the session and she said, you know, I really need some help with my sales. And I said, okay, what's the problem? And she said, well, I've been going a year and I've yet to make a sale, so I'm obviously selling badly. You know, tell, tell me a little bit more. And she said, you know, my product's wonderful. I know it is, but nobody seems to want it. You know, so it must be how I'm selling it. And, you know, that says it all. It's not about whether you think it's brilliant the market needs it. And in the same way, you know, it's not, you know, if you go to investors and say, you know, this is wonderful, it's such a great idea, it's so original, they're not going to be blown away by that away by the market opportunity. Do, do, do you also think that, uh, and I think you said this in your book, that entrepreneurs, especially technical ones, spend so many slides in their slide deck um, talking about deep detail about the technology that they lose sight on proving that there's actually a market for yeah. what they're doing? Exactly. You know, I think, I think it's all part and parcel. It's this obsession with, you know, is right and I think actually the same goes as as time goes by that you see companies founder and I've seen it in um during COVID people the people who are struggling are the people who can't to what my business does without being willing to pivot and look from a different variety and say you know okay well you know this is a great company and a great group group of people and we've got a lot of knowledge between us and so we can do lots of different things you know, still survive. Uh, with what what's happened during this past year with COVID has had a significant impact on how companies work. Is working from home going to grow and how will that impact innovation? And people aren't working together day to day because I've even had authors come on, especially 
uh, ones who focused on neurology and saying that you're, you're, our brains, uh, for people who go into an office, have shrunk like 24%. You know, companies rely on people bumping into each other for creativity. I mean, I can see where the salesperson might not come in, but so many other parts of the business, it's, it's necessary. So what's your take on that? I mean, you know, personally speaking, uh, I, I've always loved working at home. So, uh, and I like working in peace and quiet and on my own. And, you know, there's lots of us who like that. Uh, and, you know, just uh, lots of people to an office. So I think it's an individual thing. Um, what about for you companies, know, you know, where you're trying to get teams? Matter. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, some companies were already geared to some degree of hybrid working because of the growth of tech. We anyway you know i think i don't know what it's like in the states but particularly in, in the uk we're seeing this big governmental push trying to get everybody back to the offices and i don't think it's going to happen i think it's going to hybrid is here to stay governments are worried about real estate prices uh yeah. dropping like a stone and if That's people great. start working from home and they're not working uh from an office and companies decide they don't need all or a good chunk of the real estate that goes with that real exactly. estate is going yeah. to be significant, not to mention all the holdings that um, pension funds have in real estate and that we all have in real estate. If yeah. all that drops like a stone, it be cataclysmic to the economy. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, but I don't think it's a battle they're going to win myself. You know, yeah, I mean, I obviously there's some sectors that are going to stay, you know, office bound or factory bound. But I do think it's it's on the shrink. And I also think, you know, we hear all the negatives about it, but there's also, you know, grow, it spawned new economies like, um, you know, the culture as a service um, economy of lots of tech companies starting out, working out how we can nail culture for remote companies, you know, and look how well Zoom's done out of it. Yeah, it depends on your, on the company as, as to how much remote working really you're right it depends on your stake uh stake in i myself also like working from home even when i ran <laughs> other businesses because you don't have as many meetings you're able to accomplish a lot more yeah. you don't feel as accomplished when you're in stations carrying a coffee mug from meeting to meeting and feel like you've That's got right. nothing accomplished the whole day you had chapters of marketing and sales uh how has the pandemic changed marketing and sales strategy especially you're somebody who works in that space yeah, that's a, that's an interesting one because I was very sales orientated, and, and as I think I mentioned to you, my son is in sales in Australia, so I was talking to him about this one. Um, I think the the word that we both like the most is that it's become active, and I think what because he's in B two B, and I think for B two B sales particularly, you know, they it's become a question of aligning the supplier with. Uh, with the company buying because you're essentially on you know it's woken people up to the fact you're on the same side you're both there to survive you're both there to work out solutions and it's become much more about long last which i think is a good thing i think people have had to be more adaptable in sales and marketing and more market aware too um you know because because there's lots of Lots of changes going on. Uh, do you uh, recommend to startup companies? And have you seen from the research you've done, uh, advisory boards developing advisory boards, or do entrepreneurs feel like I don't really need that kind of thing? I'm just fine with my own, and especially with my senior leadership. I think it's difficult. I mean, the time poor, um, you know, all entrepreneurs up or scale up stage and I think it, it a lot depends on personality I would have always rather had a good mentor a good peer group than an advisory board but I'm you know I'm just probably not very formalized and corporate minded that I would uh, suit a, an entrepreneur uh, suit a board uh, of that type but some people might you have to go with what suits you I, I didn't know if you'd found from 
you, the entrepreneurs you interviewed, if many of them I've had never that. Heard, I mean, I haven't had anybody say to me, that's what I did, actually, no. So I wonder if it's, it's you know, if, if in general the average tends to be that that's too rigid you know I think a lot of people on those advisory boards haven't necessarily ever grown a company themselves which you know makes it difficult to to identify and really understand the problems after all this year what leadership skills do you need to develop in the post-pandemic world that will help you scale wow um I think I mean well you have to be much more techy let's face it than you did 10 years Tech, tech was inevitably coming bigger, but it's come at such pace that, you know, you actually have to be gened up in it. Um, you know, even if you're not a tech company, every every company now is a tech company to some extent. But I think it's, it's the soft skills that are the most important. I mean, they always have been to some extent, but I think you've got to have much more empathy than you used to. You know, the world's become a very frightening place to a lot of people. Yeah, do you think? have found that they're no longer kings and queens because people because of technology you're no longer locked into your town to get a job you could be working for anybody in the world i mean my daughter has a global marketing practice and we got clients all over the world if somebody's unhappy she's not dependent like we used to be on the clients that we got in the geographic area that we have and i think maybe very, employees very are true. the same uh, no, I mean, you know, there's, there's, it's the land of opportunity. You're quite right. I think it's, you know, but it's incredible opportunities to be had. Um, you know, while while at the same time, as I say, you you know, you've you've always had to put your team first. But I think you you know, you've really got to put them even more first than ever before. And their mental health is a big awareness of mental health now. But Jim, well, what do you think is the biggest concern of the CEO? What's their concern going forward? Biggest concern for any of them, I think. I'm trying to think if I can pull a generalization out of that one. I did, as you know, we talk to people who are running very different businesses in very different sectors. I think, on the whole, um, you know, it, it's, it's to do with uh, people. My- um, you know, and how they're going to do right by their people, how, you know, where they're focusing on, how they're developing that and what impact their companies can have. Uh, in terms of uh, in society and... On a big impacts, wide world, yeah. Right. That, and making sure employees are happy that they enjoyed coming to work and that they're compensating, uh, compensating them fairly. Compensating them fairly is... Because it used to be dominant, whereas now it's become much more about development and, you know, obviously training, but um, support and, you know, so many other things and, and work life balance more important. And that is the <laughs> you know, biggest so one. That's yeah. the biggest one for, uh, let's say, people under the age of 35. I hear my daughter and young entrepreneurs I deal with that, you know, this idea. We did 12 hours a day, six, seven days a week, or 15 hours a day. Yeah, I mean, I have them now asking, I want to have time for me and time for my significant other. And I want to be able to do these things. And you're thinking, God, oh, that's yeah, this, this idea of balance is really hard. I think it's great. I mean, I think yeah. it's a good way for society to move. I think it's fantastic. Is there any last piece of advice you would give to the uh, that are listening that you've learned from your book that maybe you didn't even think about uh, because you, you and I are in the day-to-day of doing it all the time. But sure. now that you, you've you gotten a chance to step back and you wrote this book. I think it, most of, yeah, I think most of all, the whole thing has taught me um, and, and a chance to reflect over my own career, as you rightly say. I think it comes back to the, one, the people who have most are secure in themselves and they acknowledge that they need to do an awful lot of self-development. And I think other people get in the way of their own progress uh, if they're not, you know, and if you're developing a company, 
you've got to develop yourself ahead of it and not much more of than it. Jan, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. I know it's late over in London. Uh, it's um, coming up to six o'clock. Uh, six o'clock. Oh, yeah. well, just six o'clock in the afternoon. No, it's not, not too bad at all. So yeah, yeah. An absolute pleasure. Well, thank you so much. I'm hoping you're going to uh, write, have you again. And um, we look forward to seeing you. Oh, thank you. Everyone have a great, safe weekend. Look forward to seeing you next week. Take thank care. Thank you all so much for listening. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Best Business Minds. Tune in every Friday at 12 p.m. Eastern Time for our live recordings. Go to www.thebestbusinessminds.com for more information and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter to be kept up to date with our upcoming guests and other bonus material. See you next time.